Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycles of things. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And today I'm going to go first, and this might be kind of a downer for you guys, but Emily has, she says, a silly one after this. So just bear with me because I I really want to talk about this, and I think it's important to talk about. I'm going to talk about face masks, disposable face masks, the surgical masks, the ear lube masks, the masks that we're all we're all using right now. So I know that COVID has taken a lot out of us and we're all kind of feeling a collective despair, it seems, about how life has halted for us and we don't know what's coming next. We're unsure about what the future holds and that's totally understandable. It's like we're collectively holding our breaths together and we're just waiting for another shoe to drop and we don't not sure how many shoes there are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's DSW out there. <laughs> and unfortunately, I'm going to add a new layer today for us to consider. I feel like it's worth talking about though because it's important because if we know about it, then we can strive to do something about it or be more mindful, be that as it may. So the problem is, I've noticed and this is grossing me out totally. I've noticed a lot of face mask litter in parking lots. And it's me re- too. It's really given me something to think about. I'm like, are people purposely doing this? Or are they just flying out of people's cars? What is happening? So surgical, surgical masks as they are, um, we know them as ear loop masks. They are the masks that you're buying in those stores. Um, and they are not the N95 masks. Those are completely different. These are just, uh, they're called surgical masks, but they're the, they seem like paper. And those are the disposable masks that people are buying because various places are requiring people to wear face masks. And there was a recent Duke study, which was very, very good, that says that face masks actually do lower the chances of you getting sick with the coronavirus pandemic, which is awesome. So face masks have been a big part in uh, lowering the numbers of COVID infection from what we can tell. However, there's been a lot of global uh, nonprofits, ocean nonprofits, for example, that have been seeing a lot of litter, face mask litter, COVID, COVID litter are, are, is kind of junking up the ocean, junking up in our environment. And I know that people have said this seems like kind of a non-problem compared to the very real problem of all the people dying, getting sick uh, during the global pandemic. But the truth is that the plastic is going to last longer than COVID. So this is something that we need to kind of think about, maybe be more mindful of, in my opinion. Um, And I don't think people should stop using uh, face masks because they are important. I just think that when we consider them, we can consider reusable alternatives. Um, the, The disposable ones are very convenient. I understand that. And there are a lot of people who legitimately have to wear disposable masks. With that said, 
Why is this a problem? So the current surgical mask or ear loop masks that people are familiar with are the ones that we were on short supply uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And they are actually not made of fabric. They're kind of fabric, not really fabric. They're not fabric in the way that you think of fabric. They're not cotton in any way, shape, or form. It is actually made from blown or spun bond polypropylene on the outside, and then kind of a melt-blown filtering polypropylene on the inside. That's what the most common ones are made. This means it's plastic. So it's like polypropylene candy. Yes, but not the candy. That's a really like, good way to put it, actually. It is definitely it's like taffy, honestly, how they make it. It's it's really so cool. That's really weird, but it's really it cool. is really weird. So it was discovered in 1951, and the polypropylene basically uh, they made it make it out of petroleum products. It's it's a polypropylene resin that uh, I'm not a crystallographer, so I can't really explain this very well. I'm just going to be very short about this. Can I kind of looked it up? Um, so the polypropylene resin is made from polymer chains that were made from uh, petroleum or crude oil and then mixed with other plasticized until they get the desired quality of the polypropylene. And then they form that melty brick into a nice brick, and then it's cold. And then after these bricks, uh, afterwards, then these bricks are remelted into sheets. And then the sheets go to a textile factory where they were melted again into molds and cut. And they are either uh, spun bond like that, which means that they are like blown into molds or they're actually just melted into the molds from these sheets. And that's how those are made. So it's it's a very cool and it's very uh, interesting synthetic fiber. Um, and it's got a lot of different properties and you can find a lot of like military grade uh, kind of clothing out of this and like any kind of your synthetic fiber moisture wicking like running clothes will probably have this in it. But it is plastic. It is definitely plastic and it's not all that great for the environment even though it is used for a lot of cosmetic uses and used for clothing because uh, they it actually is not bad for you cosmetically. It doesn't cause any um, rashes or anything like that. However, like I said, it's not environmentally environmentally friendly. So a recent NPR article this summer that was making the rounds and people were completely mortified um, if they hadn't already suspected this, that uh, plastic is not really being recycled. Not nope. how we thought it was. It's because China about two years ago decided they weren't going to take, they weren't going to buy our plastics waste from us anymore. So municipalities uh, are trying to find a way to get rid of these plastics and not having a great, not having great luck with it. So it's going into landfill. So all these plastic masks, they are not recyclable. We cannot recycle them, and they're just going to go to landfill. And I don't think anybody thought they were recyclable to begin with. 
No, I've never really seen anyone talking about recycling masks specifically. Yeah. Other plastics, yeah. People definitely thought that was going on. Uh, yeah. Not anymore. No. that We are kind of inundated with plastic. And not kind of. We are inundated with plastic. And this shows up in the ocean, unfortunately. And there's a, been a bunch of nonprofits around the world that have been finding face masks, plastic gloves, like en masse in the ocean. And one French, uh, one guy who is part of a French nonprofit, and I'm going to murder this name, I'm sorry, Operation Mer Propre, he commented on Twitter that uh, because France ordered about 2 billion disposable masks, he's going to, he believes that knowing that we're going to soon we're going to soon uh, run the risk of having more masks than jellyfish in the Mediterranean. And with that, he posted a video of a recent dive showing masks and soiled gloves like everywhere in the Antibes, um, according to the Guardian article that I was reading. So the problem is that we have already a garbage plastic landmass out in the Pacific which, if you didn't know, is actually just one of five plastic garbage patches floating in the ocean, though uh, the, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is the biggest one with about uh, 2.4 million tons of plastic in it. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch is just one of five, which is horrifying. I actually didn't know that. <laughs> I, I thought there was just one. I thought there was one, too. There's five. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch is the largest. It has uh, about 2 million tons of plastic floating in it. Yeah, it's becoming its own little plastic landmass out there, unfortunately. But we can do better. I totally believe we can do better. If we know, if we know it's out there, we can figure out ways to come together do something about it. We can invent things. We can actually figure out how to actually recycle plastic. <laughs> yeah, instead of just pretending. Instead of a pretend land. <laughs> Let's actually do it. So my, my feeling is, and I totally understand that some people need to use disposable masks. If you're using disposable masks, Please throw them away. Don't throw them in the parking lot because they're also, if you think about it, they're infectious waste. <laughs> they are. You're right. Yeah. So if you if you don't need to use disposable masks, I, I ask, please consider getting a reusable one or multiple reusable ones. There are so many options. There are so many cute ones. Uh, there's local artists, Etsy artists, are bursting with reusable mass options because that's now the new way for artists to try to m pay the bills. They're actually making masks so that they can actually, you know, survive like the rest of us. Um, and you can make them yourself, and you can be as complicated or simple as you want. There are so many options for sewing them there are youtube videos on how to make them just really consider reusing them so the covid pandemic isn't with us for the next 400 years <laughs> through the mask yeah, that'd be real cool 
you know. Yeah, that's just what I'm saying. Um, I would like people to consider it. I'm going to try to... I have a lot of uh, masks that I've made, and I have some masks that I bought from various artists, too, because I actually kind of like the different fabrics and stuff that people are using. So even though after the COVID pandemic is over, we're kind of like, well, where are the cotton masks going to go? Probably in the trash, but they will degrade a lot faster than all the plastic. So, I mean, you could just bury them. Yeah. And uh, if you message us on our Twitter like you can send us direct messages. I will make you a mask and send it to you. Exactly. I I will make you a mask. Uh, Emily says she'll make you a mask. If you want to buy a mask from me, I don't know. Emily, do you have any on your Redbubble store? Oh yeah, I do. We both have Redbubble stores. We should probably put those on our yeah. website. <laughs> I have I have masks that I've designed in my Redbubble store. So me too. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome to buy one of those. I don't expect you to. But Emily does, too. I expect you to buy from Emily. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, yes. So please wear reusable masks. Uh, Think about the future past COVID. I know it doesn't seem like there's going to be one some days, but let's just hope for the best. There we go. Yes, exactly. What are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about Nightmare on My Street and where that song went. Oh, I have never even heard of it. And I think a lot of people haven't. And um, I'm going to talk kind of about how horror and horror themes and horror movies have intersected with the musical world of hip hop and rap. And I'm going to talk... Specifically about Nightmare on My Street, because there's a little sort of story behind where that song kind of went, but also talk more generally about the intersection of horror and hip hop. And the the reason I'm doing this at all is because I'm on top of participating in several podcasts with Sarah. Uh, I'm an avid podcast listener. And two of the podcasts that I listen to regularly are the Purple Stuff podcast and the uh, podcast, the last podcast on the left. And in the last podcast on the left, in the series they did about the murders of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, they talked about the early days of their uh, respective labels their respective music labels that they worked with and there was a discussion about an early dr dre produced song called let me find this monster rapping and it's by the group laylaw l-a-y-l-a-w and it's about dracula and frankenstein being friends (laughs) it's kind of nice but uh, that was a very early dr dre produced track and i if you're not entirely familiar with dr dre he's lived quite a life uh and i don't know i, I i'm not going to do a brief biography of dr dre because it's there's no it's not possible to do a brief biography about him yeah he's an interesting guy he is he's yeah he is anyway <laughs> <laughs> 
so I also listened to Purple Stuff Podcast, and they actually began as a podcast to discuss sort of Halloween enthusiasm. And one of the regular episodes that they've released year after year, because they're kind of spotty in their production, kind of like we've become, uh, where they'll have large breaks because it's totally their sort of side gig to do a podcast. But every year, or just about every year, they will release a spooky songs countdown of typically between five and seven spooky songs that they would like to include on say a spooky song list or whatever and there have been there's been they talk about the backgrounds of the songs and stuff like that and there have been several that have been hip-hop or rap songs and uh, it always interested me to hear the backstories of those songs and sort of how they intersected with the careers of the people who performed them and also how they intersected with other facets of pop culture and the rise of hip-hop and rap as part of American music history and things like that. So I'm going to begin closer to the beginning and talk about horrorcore, which is a subgenre of rap, versus horror-inspired hip-hop, which is a different thing. So... Let's break this down a little further and talk about hip-hop versus rap. Hip-hop includes rap, but is not always rap. Rap music is the square of the hip-hop rectangle. <laughs> so, they have four corners and parallel sides, but rap requires four equal <laughs> equal length sides, and hip-hop is allowed to have different lengths, as long as it still has four corners that are 90 degrees. Uh there are actually specific components of a song that are required to make it hip-hop, and then there are further components required to make it rap. I'm not going to get into that because not only am I not a musician, but I would want to do a lot more research on that before I uh, spoke definitively because all I did was read that in a Wikipedia article. And it, the list made sense to me, but it's not something that I feel comfortable just repeating versus looking into more, I guess. So... Hip-hop, as a term, may have been coined multiple times over. Uh, there's a lot of uh, call and repeat in hip-hop music that actually mimics components of blues. And it often has to do with syllables rhyming or close to rhyming or sounding good together. And hip-hop, 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 that sort of bounce back and forth is an appealing sound combination. And there have been... At least three people who may have coined the term. The first is Keith Cowboy Wiggins, or Lovebug Starsky, who is going to come up later as well, or DJ Hollywood. And again, I'm going to I'm going to spit up a lot of names, and you can look into all these people, but uh, I'm not going to go deeply into the history of most of these people because it tends to be hugely broad. You could probably read or write very long biographies on all these people. We're talking, we talked about sort of the origin of hip hop as a term. And then the origin of the term rap is credited to Africa Bombada. And then horrorcore is a subgenre of rap. So it's a rap is, I guess, kind of a subgenre of hip hop. And then horrorcore is a subgenre of rap. Uh, groups like the Ghetto Boys, Three Six Mafia, Insane Clown Posse, Bone Thugs and Harmony, and many more are considered either considered horror core groups, particularly the Ghetto Boys, 
or they have horrorcore songs. Uh, early horrorcore, before the term was coined, includes groups like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and Gangsta NIP, among others. It includes references to the occult, to... There was a lot of emphasis in discussion of horrorcore on it being v- considered very violent, which mm. I think is interesting because I'm not familiar with all of these songs, but I'm, f- or, you know, all of these groups or all of their work, but I'm familiar with enough of it to know that it just doesn't seem any more violent than a lot of other music or a lot of other, even rap subgenres, but also other, like heavy metals tends to, tends to be pretty violent, depending like lamb metal, not so much, but if you're talking about death metal or Norwegian black metal or th- some of that could be really violent and oh, absolutely. I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of cultural hand wringing about a lot of genres of music that is not reflective of their actual weight or problematic nature. So just just a side note, uh, there has been a psychological study that has found that even though the uh, vi- the music is violent, and I think this specifically goes towards heavy metal, but absolutely could be uh, put onto rap as well because it's the newest the newest demon when people talk about violence, they've never found that either music or video games for that matter have, have made uh, people any more violent. Yeah. uh, It's funny that they tend to talk about how video games make people better at surgery, (laughs) but they don't really, it's, it's interesting that they don't ask whether that makes people more violent surgeons or something you know it's not it's always done in like tiny chunks without looking at a big picture right I actually actually put in my notes one bullet point down uh horror core and rap and hip-hop in general have been blamed for a lot of social ills but it's odd that they're never considered a result of social ills hmm thank you <laughs> anyhow uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these groups were influenced a lot of these groups are individuals not all of them are some of them are solo acts a lot of them are groups emerged from some of the horror inclusive hip-hop songs of the 80s and what also emerged from those groups as i mentioned to dr dre dr dre eventually be- started working with gangster rap mm-hmm. and that that subgenre of rap it's i i once made a chart of subgenres of metal music like heavy metal, because it's really confusing, and I should do that with hip hop too. Because mm-hmm. just because it helps me keep it straight in my head, I just want to make a chart. <laughs> Was it like a family tree kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Or, oh, awesome. yeah, or like a like a uh, an evolutionary tree. It's it's just helped me. I did that one afternoon because um I'm the type of person that makes charts when I have time on my own. Anyway, <laughs> all right, so let's take a, a slight turn here and talk about Dr. Demento and Weird Al. Uh, so as hip-hop was developing in the early 80s and rap was becoming sort of a subgenre of this and there was also a lot, there were also a lot of these horror songs being made by hip-hop artists. There were also there was also sort of the emergence of the Dr. Demento radio show. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Demento, but uh, he ran a radio show for a very long time at, in California. I believe it was a local one that then got syndicated. 
And he would play kind of whatever he felt like playing. And it was a lot of... Uh, he would play a lot of parody songs. He would play a lot of 60s songs, like the the sort of novelty Monster Mash and things like that. He's actually a big part of why we still listen to those songs because he sort of picked them up from mild obscurity and started, or, or the, there's another song, They're Coming to Take Me Away, haha. Have you heard that one? I don't know. I never have. It's, I mean, it's it's a good, like, kooky Halloween song but (laughs) he would play songs like that and he was a major reason that Weird Al Yankovic got a record deal Uh, he heard I believe Weird Al sent Dr. Demento a demo tape of uh, him doing a parody song and then Dr. Demento like tracked Al Yankovic down at his high school and then eventually Weird Al wrote Another one rides the bus. He got a lot of radio play through Dr. Demento. And then he has, he's still making music. He had a massive career. So this was a development of a microcosm of parody songs in the Los Angeles area. Weird Al grew up in Linwood, California, which is a neighborhood just north of Compton. So he was right around all of this development of gangster rap and Dr. Dre doing work and things like that at the same time and it's not this the case that they were like buddy buddy or that dr demento was integral in the development of rap music but that horror influence and, and the influence of singing about dracula and singing about frankenstein it's fun to do because universal horror monsters in particular are sort of identifiable they tie into a lot of universal hu- human concepts like revenants and uh, ghosts and uh, giants and things like that we've talked about in several other episodes, but this parody and horror radio coupled with the emergence of hip hop in the area and then eventually gangster rap led to led to inspiration on both sides because Weird Al has done parodies of rap songs as well. Later on, he, he did parodies of uh, Gangsta's Paradise, which is a Coolio song. He did Amish Paradise. He did Chameleon Air featuring Crazy Bone, Riding Dirty. And then Weird Al did Riding Nerdy. <laughs> and the the Puff Daddy, uh, and I believe it's Mace and several others, song um, All About the Benjamins, he did a parody of All About the Pentiums. So he has tied his career loosely into rap music, really just any pop music, but rap music has been, he hasn't excluded it from his purview like a lot of people would, because there's a lot of... There's a lot of tension about the the racial components of rap and hip hop in that a lot of people don't want to either they don't want to engage in music that black people make or they don't want to engage in it or with it in a genuine way or in like an honest way. They just want to sort of co-opt it. And then there's also the sort of hand wringing about about the sort of social ills that this these genres of music are apparently responsible for. They aren't. I want to make that abundantly clear. Uh, there's in a possibility response to it, honestly. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest that there's some potential violence between certain, uh, particularly record producers. And we could get into where did Shook Knight go? Things like that. But oh. anyway. he's still alive. So, you know, he's in prison for murder, but he's still alive. That's a complicated story. <laughs> yep. Anyway, 
Anyway. <laughs> so this sort of microcosm of parody and horror radio and the emergence of hip-hop, including things like early Dr. Dre produced tracks about Dracula and Frankenstein being friends, resulted in sort of a spate of horror-inspired hip-hop songs in the 80s. The first one is that was sort of picked out was the Jimmy Spicer song, Adventures of Super Rhyme, which involves a mention of Dracula. There's Dana Dane's Nightmares, which includes like a weird possessed psychotherapist that I, that in, in a nightmare. It's an interesting video. I, what I'll probably do, what I think I should do with this is create sort of a playlist on YouTube of the songs that I mentioned in this, just so you can Oh, sort of that'd see. be awesome. Yeah, because there's like a uh, a rip of the vinyl of Monster Rappin' by the group Layla, the Dr. Dre produced track. And so I've given all this huge sort of backstory so that I can talk about Nightmare on My Street, which is a DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince track. Yay! Released in 1988. It's a lot of fun. I really like this song. I like it as a song. I think DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince are great musicians. This song sampled the Nightmare on Elm Street theme. It's a really fun song. It's about uh, Fresh Prince having a dream about Freddy, but it's not really a dream because it's never really a dream when it's about Freddy. And then I believe, spoiler alert for this 32-year-old song, but (laughs) I believe DJ Jazzy Jeff gets murdered by Freddy Krueger. So they sampled the actual theme. And then they shopped it, or the record label, shopped it to New Line Cinema for A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. But New Line Cinema passed in favor of the song Are You Ready for Freddy by the group The Fat Boys. Now, The Fat Boys were an extremely commercially popular group. And they they were sort of pioneers in beatboxing. And so they opened the door to a lot of other beatboxers to to perhaps like become more famous it's not like they taught everybody whoever beatboxed how to do it it's more like as they became very commercially popular including doing the theme song for nightmare on elm street 4 with the song are you ready for freddy which is also a good song they sort of they were integral in the development of beatboxing as a common hip-hop element and Part of why I'm talking about all this sort of horror hip-hop and horror core and things like that is that that I find it interesting that it's sort of a segment or like a side topic in hip-hop and rap consistently. But it also ties into things like the rise of beatboxing, the rise of gangster rap, the parody rap and Weird Al Yankovic and parody music. And I'm going to get to other uh, very famous people who have done things like horror rap or hip-hop and I find it fascinating that it's a facet that a lot of people I don't think they think about but it's touched so many components of rap and hip-hop history and I'll get to even more of them it's it's like it's it's like the white panther party of rap and hip-hop in that it's got its fingers in a, a like the the tendrils touch a lot of different very important events huh anyway. uh so back to nightmare on my street so, so the music label that released this got sued by nina lime cinema because they hadn't actually initially gotten permission to y- sample the the uh theme song <laughs> but a, a settlement was worked out where they could release the single 
And it did really well. It was a number 15 on the Billboard 100 as a crossover hit. But the music label was required to... Oh, and they were also able to release it as a single on the album He's the DJ. Isn't it I'm the DJ? I believe it is. It was also on the greatest hit album. Oh, He's the DJ, I'm the Rapper. That's it. Oh, cool. I was half right. You were kind of half right, too. Perfect. Yeah, I thought it was I'm the DJ, He's the Rapper, but whatever. Yeah, and it's just the opposite. Yeah. Uh, the There was a music video filmed for the single in 1988 that was destroyed, and I'm making air quotes in an auditory medium. Uh, <laughs> because this music video is mysteriously accessible on the internet today. So that destroyed music video is available for viewing. <laughs> and then the vinyl album also had to be labeled with a big sticker on the front that said the song is not part of the soundtrack and is not authorized, licensed, or affiliated with the Nightmare on Elm Street films. So this song was allowed to be released and did pretty well at the time, but it did not become as big a hit, in my opinion, because New Line Cinema passed on it in favor of Are You Ready for Freddy by the Fat Boys. And that's also a song that didn't do super great at, like in terms of longevity. I hadn't heard of it until recently. And I listened to go- like horror. I listened to like the Halloween party Pandora station and stuff all the time. And they play Nightmare on My Street. They do not play Are You Ready for Freddy. They should. Because it's a, it's a good song. It's really fun. But they don't. Okay. So that's where Nightmare on My Street went. And uh, obviously Will Smith, I don't know what happened with him. He just like fell off the face of the earth. I'm joking. I, he should be way more famous than he is. He's one of the best actors, like crossover genre actors and musicians of our time, in my opinion. Wow. Anyway. I mean, if you think about it, he's done so many sci-fi action films that are amazing. He's done drama films. He's done comedies. He's done... I mean, the number of pop hits he had in the early 2000s was staggering. He's done work for, like, television, movies, and music forever. He's been working since he was, like, what, 16? Yeah. So, anyway... I think he should be considered a bigger deal than he is, in my opinion. So let's move on to the 90s. Okay. Because in the, <laughs> in the 90s, there becomes... Oh, I'm sorry. I said we were going to talk about Lovebug Starsky briefly. So Lovebug Starsky, which is a name you may well have never heard, uh, was a hip-hop artist. And he probably came up with independently of a few other people the term hip-hop if not he helped popularize it popularize it and he released a song called amityville house on the hill was one of his earlier songs and it's a really fun song so you've got horror involved in the inception of gangster rap you've got horror involved in sort of the careers of people like the fat boys and DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. Uh, you've got horror involved in the originators of terms hip-hop and rap. And then we're moving into the 90s. And there's sort of a... Dis- it's like it's become enough of a thing, intentionally or otherwise, to now be sort of separating into pop 
parody again and then into horrorcore. So as horrorcore is developing as a genre and the Ghetto Boys are developing their uh, early work and things like that and all sorts of other sort of horrorcore rappers are delving into perhaps darker subjects than just talking about Dracula being friends with Frankenstein. There's also uh, a branch of sort of higher energy... No, I don't want to say higher energy. Lighter fare, like Elvira's Monster Rap. This came up on Purple Stuff Podcast as well because one of the hosts is a huge fan of Elvira. Uh, Elvira actually has a massive discography. She has has released, she's sung or rapped a lot of, they're kind of silly parody horror-based songs, but they're really entertaining. Uh, It's sort of similar to Dr. Demento and her enthusiasm for horror, including just some of the worst horror you've ever seen in your life. And she's still hard at work as Elvira. And you can see her really fun movie on streaming services. I love Elvira. She's a fascinating woman. She has had a heck of a hustle for a long time. Yes, she has. And I admire it. And then there's also MC Hammer. Because MC Hammer did the theme song, Adam's Groove, for the Adam's Family movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was used for a theme song as the movie, but it was also featured on his album Too Legit to Quit. Similar to He's the DJ, I'm the Rapper, at having Nightmare on My Street on the actual album, MC Hammer included this, I mean, you could argue it's a parody song. It's more just sort of a lighter uh, hip-hop song. Uh, Too Legit to Quit as the song is also in the movie, The Addams Family. I love that movie. I... <laughs> I love MC Hammer's music. I love the movie Adam's Family. I do too. I love it so much. And so just to briefly talk about MC Hammer, because I find him to be a very interesting man. Uh, He rather famously filed for bankruptcy to erase around $13 million in debt, but he was never granted a bankruptcy. He filed for Chapter 11 and it was converted to a Chapter 7 filing and then denied. So he never actually went bankrupt. Uh, He became an ordained minister. He reconnected with his faith, but he also is uh, very invested in science. And uh, I follow him on Twitter. He's very interesting. I don't have other social media. So like, I think he's got a Facebook account and stuff, but uh, he tweets a lot about science and science discussions and not bunk from what I can tell. He's also consistently released music throughout his life. And so while he had some very big hits in the early 90s, particularly off the Two Legits Quit album, he's been a musician for a long time. Uh, he's, he would be, it would be interested to do an episode about him because, or actually, I might ask the, you're wrong about people. Not that I talk to them regularly, but I might tweet to them about how you're wrong about MC Hammer. That would be kind of a fun episode because what we're wrong about, he never went bankrupt. And he's still making music. And he's a cool, like, he seems like a pretty nice guy. Oh, see, I had this vision of him as, like, this horrible guy. Honestly. And he um, he did say in, in interviews that he sort of strayed from his personal Christian faith. He was raised Pentecostal. Uh, while he was very famous. So around the two legit to quit days. But, and I, I don't know that he's ever talked about this. He was with Tupac Shakur the night he was murdered. 
and he had a contract with Death Row Records. And they did not release the album of songs he recorded with them. And he left as soon as he could after Tupac Shakur was murdered. And I have a sneaking suspicion that was sort of a turning point for him personally. How could that's it around not th- be? I mean, yeah, exactly. So that's just sort of uh, as groups like Insane Clown Posse and Three Six Mafia and Bone Thugs and Harmony were developing sort of their horror core existence uh there was also the the sort of lighter parody not as not so much parody not full-on joke songs but kind of joke songs aspect of horror inspired hip-hop so that's where nightmare on my street went and a whole bunch of other information that nobody asked for but i think is interesting I learned an incredible amount today. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff I had not even considered. That was amazing. I, I, it was really fun to listen to a bunch of podcast episodes about these individual songs or about events surrounding the rise of death row records and, and things like that. And then get to put together this sort of loose thread of connectivity that doesn't, I don't think a lot of it was intentional or some of it is intentional in smaller scales. There's just a lot of interconnected uh, important events in hip hop and rap history that have touched sort of horror influencing hip hop and rap songs. Was MC Hammer married to Whitney Houston? No. So Whitney's Whitney Houston's dad wanted him to marry her. And they talked about it at like a baseball game or something. I didn't dive into this because I just read that today. But uh, I don't believe so. I believe MC Hammer is still married to his wife of 30 years. Yeah. He married before he got really famous. I just looked it up on Wikipedia. He's been married to the same woman since 1985. And it strikes me as unlikely that he would be a polygamist. Yeah. I'm not speaking for him, but it just strikes me as improbable. Uh, So I think he's just still married to his wife of 30 years. Yeah. And they are adorable. I just found a picture from March uh, 2020 with them. And they, she looks absolutely amazing in the dress she's wearing and he looks very sweet i see i learned all this stuff about mc hammer too i had no idea and like do you remember hammer pants my mom made me and my brother parachute pant pajamas so that we could do the the running man around the house (laughs) i loved mc hammer as a child i loved his music i still appreciate it and enjoy it And apparently, my Aunt Mary remembers this, but I actually don't. I had an MC Hammer doll that talked. (gasps) Really? Yeah. I truly don't remember it, so I probably broke it. I must have been a very small child. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. So, I had parachute pants. I like parachute pants. They are based on pants Sammy Davis Jr. would wear. That was MC Hammer wanted pants that would be easier to dance with. Because he is a tremendous dancer. And he wanted to be able to move freely. He didn't want it. Was, this was before stretch fabrics were as much of a thing and, or stretch content in woven fabrics. So if you had like a suit you were wearing or even denim, 
you couldn't move as easily in it. And this was prior to super baggy pants, uh, super, sa- you know, sagging pants, all this stuff. So that's why parachute pants were kind of a thing for MC Hammer. Yeah, my husband, I think, had a pair of Hammer pants and they in the in the early 90s. And I think his mom made them. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, his mom. And I think that they were like this blue metallic color. I don't I know if we still have them. Bo- I hope we do. <laughs> I hope you do. I want to make me and my daughter matching parachute pants now. Absolutely. So we can do the running man around the house. She would love that. <laughs> and yeah, I totally remember MC Hammer being a just fantastic dancer. Just really, really good and talented musician. So yeah, the nineties the nineties were full of him and yeah, he's I'm glad he's still doing his thing. Yep. Follow him on Twitter. He's very interesting. Hmm. Cool. Thanks, Emily. I learned a ton of stuff. Of course. <laughs> and I'll I'll put together that uh that playlist and post it so that people can listen to the music I've referenced cuz a lot of it is just really fun. Mhm. And I'm going to go listen to Nightmare on My Street right now. Nice. In Amityville. That's another it's they both have very similar uh cadences to them. I don't think they're related at all. Mm. Uh, they were made far apart, but they sort of have similar I guess beats per minute or whatever feel to them that is very sort of enjoyable and you can get into it even though it's about horrible subject matter like DJ Jesse Jeff gets murdered in the song Uh, but it doesn't feel like a song in which somebody gets murdered on the phone yeah you can find us all over the internet we're around Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram and we have a website where does it podcast.com and you can also find us at where does it podcast at gmail.com if you want to talk to us today. And if you want us to make you a mask, we'll make you a mask. Absolutely. And we'll send it to you. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.